welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. We are done with Fund Drive and want to thank all of you who called and pledged your support for this station and this show. And so we begin our coverage of COP26, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, being held in Glasgow, Scotland. It's kicked off on October 31st and will run through November 12th. In addition to heads of states that attended, including President Joe Biden, tens of thousands of protesters hit the streets of Glasgow amid a very heavy police presence to protest government inaction at the growing climate catastrophe. Notably missing from Glasgow were China's President Xi and Vladimir Putin of Russia. This, as the World Health Organization says that climate change is the greatest threat to global health in the 21st century. 2021 was the hottest year on record, according to NASA, and each year, according to the United Nations, 75 billion tons of fertile soil is lost due to land degradation. And as climate change grows, the numbers of wildfires has increased and more than 166,000 people have died just due to increasing heat. And many more become climate refugees as a result of climate degradation and many more still die as a result of pollution also brought on by drought and increased flooding which result from soil degradation. And while countries of the global north are responsible overwhelmingly for the climate crisis, it is the global south, the so-named third world, as well as indigenous black and brown communities in the global north, referred to as frontline communities, that are now paying the highest price, the first to feel the devastating impacts of climate change. This includes small island nations, some of whom are sinking. Others will be overwhelmed with the ocean as sea levels rise. Here I'd like to play a part of a speech given for COP26, given by Simon Kofi, the foreign minister of Tuvalu. Tuvalu is located in the Pacific Ocean. The foreign minister gave his speech fully suited, knee deep in seawater. Let's go to that clip now. We are living the realities of climate change, sea level rise as you stand watching me today at COP26. We cannot wait for speeches when the sea is rising around us all the time. Climate mobility must come to the forefront. We must take bold alternative action today to secure tomorrow. Climate change is an existential threat to Tuvalu and low-lying atoll countries. We are sinking, but so is everyone else. And no matter if we feel the impacts today, like in Tuvalu, or in a hundred years, we will all still feel the dire effects of this global crisis one day. In Tuvalu, our islands are sacred to us. They contain the mana of our people. They were the home of our ancestors. They are the home of our people today and we want them to remain the home of our people into the future. This is why this call to you from Tuvalu is not just a political statement. 
It is a call that reverberates from our eight islands and our 12,000 people to the international community. Oh my goodness, um, just Tuvalu, an island uh, sinking, many others also under threat. But it is not only the global south that pays the price, each and every one of us do, from Hurricane Sandy that hit New York City to the growing threat of wildfires along the west coast of the United States to the increasingly devastating hurricanes and tornadoes that hit the continental U.S. Meanwhile, experts warn we are at a tipping point globally, and if emergency measures are not taken now, we will have reached a point of no return. So what's going on at the UN Climate Crisis Conference, COP26? Will government leaders do what is necessary to reverse climate devastation? What message are countries most at threat saying, and what are they demanding? Why are so many environmentalists boycotting COP26 and see it as a waste of time and resources? Our guests are Tina Gerthardt, who is covering COP26 for The Nation magazine, and Winnie Overbeck, the coordinator of the World Forest Movement. We will also hear the speech of the Barbados Prime Minister, Mia Amor Motley. Her speech caused waves in Glasgow and caused world leaders, including President Biden, to take note. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. A federal judge has rejected former President Trump's attempt to block the release of documents to the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th Capitol insurrection. Federal District Judge Tanya Chutkin declined to issue a preliminary injunction. She said Congress has a strong public interest in obtaining records that could shed light on a violent insurrection mounted by the former president's supporters. Barring a court order, the National Archives plans to turn over Trump's records to the the committee by Friday. Trump's lawyers swiftly appealed the ruling. The case is likely to eventually reach the U.S. Supreme Court. In her ruling, Chutkin noted that President Biden had the authority to release the documents. She rejected what she said was Trump's claim that executive privilege exists in perpetuity. Presidents are not kings, and the plaintiff is not president, Chutkin ruled. The committee has interviewed more than 150 witnesses and issued more than 30 subpoenas, including 10 more announced yesterday. Former Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany and former top advisor Stephen Miller are among those receiving the latest subpoenas. Democrat Zoe Lofgren serves on the select committee. She reminded MSNBC the committee needs to find out who funded and planned the attack and said more subpoenas are yet to come. We think that we'll learn things from these individuals. And what we've found is that, uh, you know, we're, as we get more information, it leads us to other information. 
quite a few individuals have come forward voluntarily to provide information. Some people are asking for subpoenas, so there'll be more of those in, in days and weeks ahead. Prices for U.S. consumers jumped 6.2 percent in October compared with a year earlier. Prices surge for food, gas, and housing. Inflation is eroding the strong gains in wages and salaries that workers have received in recent months. World governments are poised to express alarm and concern about how much the earth has already heated up and to encourage one another to end their use of coal. That's according to a draft of the final document expected at the UN COP26 climate talks. The early version of the document also impresses on countries the need to cut carbon dioxide emissions by about half by 2030, even though pledges so far from governments don't add up to that goal. There are no explicit references to ending the use of oil and gas and no binding promises. Greenpeace calls the draft exceptionally weak. Christina Onestead reports that U.N. officials are also criticizing wealthy nations for failing to adequately address the climate crisis. United Nations Environment Program Director Inger Anderson presented the U.N. Emissions Gaps 2021 report. Frankly, it's the elephant giving birth to a mouse. It finds the G20 nations, the group of 20 industrialized wealthy countries, hold 78 percent of all emissions. And while the need is to reduce them by 55 percent, They've barely been reduced by eight. Another analysis by Climate Action Tracker finds the suggested emission reductions at the talks would increase the global temperature more than 1.5 degrees Celsius. Anderson says while there's a lot of talk about zero emissions, they're just that. The pledges are generally vague. They're generally untransparent. Some deal with uh, GHGs, some deal with CO2 only. They are hard to... Um, calculate and they are hard to hold to account. None of the main three UN goals for the two-week talks have been achieved so far. Cutting greenhouse gas emissions by half by 2030, securing $100 billion a year in aid from rich nations to poor ones, and having half of that money go for developing nations to adapt to global warming's worst harms. I'm Christina Onestead. The White House says about 900,000 kids aged 5 to 11 will have received their first dose of the COVID-19 vaccine in their first week of eligibility. Another 700,000 appointments are scheduled for the coming days. About 28 million 5 to 11-year-olds are now eligible for the kid-sized Pfizer vaccine. Separately, Pfizer is asking U.S. regulators to allow boosters of its vaccine for anyone 18 or older. Older Americans and other groups particularly vulnerable to the virus have had access to a third dose of the Pfizer vaccine since September. The World Health Organization has urged wealthy nations to hold off on boosters to their general populations, while poor nations remain without enough vaccines to offer even a first dose. The defense in the murder trial of Kyle Rittenhouse will continue its case today after prosecutors wrapped up yesterday. The then 17-year-old shot three people, killing two of them on a night of protest and property damage in Kenosha after a police officer shot Jacob Blake in the back seven times, permanently injuring him. His attorneys claim Rittenhouse acted in self-defense. Prosecutors say he was the aggressor. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We begin our coverage of COP26 now that our fund drive is over. 
we are as a planet in an emergency. Our planet is experiencing an urgent state of crisis. The livelihoods of more than 1 billion people in about 100 countries are threatened uh, by growing deserts. Heat waves and wildfires are becoming more frequent and intensive and extensive. Between 2000 and 2016, the number of people exposed to heat waves increased by around 125 million. During this time, um, more than 166,000 people died because of heat waves. In 2020, the number of wildfires around the world were up 13% from 2019, and 2019 was a record year. The World Wildlife Fund estimates that at least 75% of all wildfires are caused by human activity. Increased warming in the Arctic and Antarctica has also contributed to melting permafrost, glacial retreat, and sea ice loss. Our planet is losing Arctic sea ice at a rate of almost 13% per decade. And over the last 30 years, the oldest and thickest ice in the Arctic has melted by a whopping 95%. Observations from 11 satellite missions monitoring Antarctic ice sheets have revealed that the region is losing ice six times faster than it was in the 1990s. The melting of ice sheets and glaciers has changed the weight distribution of the planet, so much so that the North and South Poles themselves have shifted. Higher temperatures are also creating more intense storms and other extreme weather events in delicate environments such as coral reefs, mountains, and forests. Many species are forced to relocate or become extinct as their environment changes. Climate devastation is also threatening humans with food and water scarcity, increased flooding, extreme heat, disease, and poverty. It is also contributing to global migration. Afro-Indigenous peoples and the Global South nations have not only been bearing the brunt of environmental devastation, they have also been leading the movement against it uh, since time immemorial. These are Indigenous peoples in the Americas, but also from around the world. While the greatest polluters are the large and industrialized nations, those who pay the highest price for climate devastation are often the small nations who pollute the least. These include island nations in the Caribbean Sea, as well as in the Indian and Pacific Oceans, where sea levels continue to rise. On the continents, Afro-Indigenous people are also bearing the brunt of climate devastation with their lands and forests facing incessant uh, destruction. And this is true for all indigenous people, not only those who are Afro-descended, but they're also at, on the front lines of the movement against economic and political policies that are destroying our planet. And indigenous peoples were the first historically to recognize the rights of Mother Earth. Now, this conference that's going on right now in Glasgow uh, is the 26th uh, conference to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and the third meeting of the parties to the Paris Climate Accords. The heads of state of China, Russia, 
well, actually China and Russia, they were not uh, present. Uh, also, the heads of state of South Africa, Iran, Mexico, Brazil, and Turkey also were not in attendance. The four stated goals of COP26 include one, securing global net zero by mid-century and keeping 1.5 degrees within reach. Two, adapting to protect communities and natural habitats. Three, raising funds for climate action. And four, working together to deliver. Organizers of COP26 touted as a chance to unite the world to tackle human-induced climate change. But however, environmentalists are saying not so fast. Many protesters and critics of the conference say these goals don't go far enough. They point out that the conference is being dictated by the very same governments and corporations that are largely responsible for environmental devastation to begin with. Furthermore, many of the solutions that are being flouted still operate within the capitalist free market system, which many say is antithetical to the environment as to life itself. Glasgow has witnessed numerous well-attended environmental protests since the start of COP26. On Friday, November 6, environmental activist Greta Thunberg led a Fridays for Future protest in which thousands of people, mainly youth and school children, attended. Attendees call for more immediate and far-reaching action on climate change. And on Sunday, November 7th, the Global Day action for climate justice, over a hundred thousand people took part in a march. Also, a hundred marches, over a hundred marches, took place elsewhere in the UK with a total of 300 protests across 100 countries across the world. And prior to COP26, hundreds of people took part in a week of protests at the White House from October 11th to 15th to pressure President Joe Biden to declare a climate emergency and to end all new fossil fuel projects, composed of hundreds of indigenous black environmental climate justice youth and social justice organizations. The Build Back Fossil Free Coalition launched the People versus Fo Fossil Fuels. Biden's test week of action in advance uh, leading up to the COP26 climate summit in Glasgow. Now, close to 300 people were arrested doing civil disobedience at those demonstrations. Now, to just kick off um, our coverage here, we are actually going to uh, play for you a speech given by the Prime Minister of Barbados, uh, Mia Amor Motley. It has caused quite a stir uh, across the world, actually, and has caused the leaders of, of major nations to take note. Uh, a lot of time of these conferences, when a small island leader speaks, the room basically empties out of major leaders. But sitting riveted to what Prime Minister Motley had to say was President Biden, uh, Boris Johnson of the UK, and world leaders from around the world. And clearly there was a lot of emotion as people felt that she spoke not only for the island of Barbados, but for countries in the global south under threat by climate generally. Let's go to hear Prime Minister Mia Amor Motley of Barbados. The pandemic has taught us that national solutions 
to global problems do not work. We come to Glasgow with global ambition to save our people and to save our planet. But we now find three gaps on mitigation, climate pledges or NDCs. Without more, we will leave the world on a pathway to 2.7 degrees and with more, we are still likely to get to two degrees. These commitments made by some are based on technologies yet to be developed and this is at best reckless and at worst dangerous. On finance, we are $20 billion short of the 100 billion and this commitment even then might only be met in 2023. On adaptation, adaptation finance remains only at 25%, not the 50-50 split that was promised nor needed given the warming that is already taking place on this earth. Climate finance to frontline small island developing states declined by 25% in 2019. Failure to provide the critical finance and that of loss and damage is measured, my friends, in lives and livelihoods in our communities. This is immoral and it is unjust. If Glasgow is to deliver on the promises of Paris, it must close these three gaps. So I ask to you, what must we say to our people living on the front line in the Caribbean, in Africa, in Latin America, in the Pacific, when both ambition and regrettably some of the needed faces at Glasgow are not present. What excuse should we give for the failure? In the words of that Caribbean icon, Eddie Grant, will they mourn us on the front line? When will we, as world leaders across the world, address the pressing issues that are truly causing our people angst and worry, whether it is climate or whether it is vaccines? Simply put, when will leaders lead? Our people are watching and our people are taking note. And are we really going to leave Scotland without the resolve and the ambition that is sorely needed to save lives and to save our planet? How many more voices and how many more pictures of people must we see on these screens without being able to move? Or are we so blinded and hardened that we can no longer appreciate the cries of humanity. I have been saying to Barbadians for many years that many hands make light work. Today, we need the correct mix of voices, ambition, and action. Do some leaders in this world believe that they can survive and thrive on their own? Have they not learned from the pandemic? Can there be peace and prosperity if one-third of the world literally prospers and the other two-thirds of the world live under siege and face calamitous threats to our well-being? What the world needs now, my friends, is that which is within the ambit of less than 200 persons who are willing and prepared to lead. Leaders must not fail those who elect them to lead. And I say to you, there is a sword that can cut down this Gordian knot, and it has been wielded before. 
The central banks of the wealthiest countries engaged in $25 trillion of quantitative easing in the last 13 years. $25 trillion. Of that, $9 trillion was in the last 18 months to fight the pandemic. Had we used that $25 trillion to purchase bonds, to finance the energy transition, or the transition of how we eat, or how we move ourselves in transport, we would now today be reaching that 1.5 degrees limit that is so vital to us. I say to you today in Glasgow that an annual increase in the SDRs of $500 billion a year for 20 years put in a trust to finance the transition is the real gap, Secretary General, that we need to close, not the $50 billion being proposed for adaptation. And if $500 billion sounds big to you, guess what? It is just 2% of the $25 trillion. This is the sword we need to wield. Our excitement one hour into this event is far less than it was six months ago leading up to this event. Can we, with those voices and these speeches from Sir David and others, find it within ourselves to get the resolve to bring Glasgow back on track? Or do we leave today believing that it was a failure before it starts? Our world, my friends, stands at a fork in the road, one no less significant than when the United Nations was formed in 1945. But then, the majority of our countries here did not exist. We exist now. The difference is we want to exist 100 years from now. And if our existence is to mean anything, then we must act in the interests of all of our people who are depending on us. And if we don't, we will allow the path of greed and selfishness to sow the seeds of our common destruction. The leaders of today, not 2030, not 2050, must make this choice. It is in our hands. And our people and our planet need it more than ever. We can work with who is ready to go because the train is ready to leave. And those who are not yet ready, we need to continue to ring circle and to remind them that their people, not our people, but their citizens, need them to get on board as soon as possible. Code red, code red to the G7 countries. Code red, code red to the G20. Earth to cop, that's what it said. Earth to cop. For those who have eyes to see, for those who have ears to listen, and for those who have a heart to feel, 1.5 is what we need to survive. Two degrees, yes, SG, is a death sentence for the people of Antigua and Barbuda, for the people of the Maldives, for the people of Dominica and Fiji, for the people of Kenya and Mozambique, and yes, for the people of Samoa and Barbados. We do not want that dreaded death sentence. And we've come here today to say, try harder, try harder because our people, the climate army, the world, the planet, 
needs our actions now, not next year, not in the next decade. Thank you. Our people, the Climate Army, needs action now. Code Red, Code Red, says Prime Minister Mia Amor Motley of Barbados. By the way, many of you know that is my island nation. Uh, she's a friend, and we're very proud of the speech that she gave in Glasgow. And um, it's very emotional, actually, to hear her say that 2% is a death sentence for so many countries, including Samoa, as well as my home island island of Barbados. We are going to take a station break now and coming up, Tina Gerthardt, who's been covering uh, COP26 for The Nation magazine, joins us and will be followed by Winnie Overbeck of the World Rainforest Movement. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner True. Check out our website at sotrueradio.org and you can like and friend us on Facebook if you're still a member of Facebook. Our handle on Twitter and Instagram at sotrueradio and we're heard nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And in the United States, we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Northern California. And internationally, I'd like to give a shout out to the island nation, our listeners in the island nation of Barbados. We are now going to continue our coverage um, of the COP26. Uh, we are facing a climate crisis, and I would now like to go directly to introduce our next guest. Uh, Tina R. Gerhardt is an environmental journalist. Her work has been published by Gris, the Progressive, the Nation, and Sierra Magazine. She is currently the Baron Professor of Environment at Princeton University. Tina is the author of the forthcoming book, Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean. She's covering COP26 for The Nation and Sierra Magazines. Tina Gerhardt, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's so great to be with you, Margaret. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, and uh, Tina, I'm actually so glad uh, that I played um, Prime Minister Mia Motley's uh, speech before this because I could see that your the latest article, I've been following your coverage and the work you've been doing at COP26, uh, talks about the island nations. But before we get to that, Tina, um, the what do you think of the guidelines, the the supposed guidelines that have come out uh, just early today uh, from governments of COP26. Yeah, I'd love to talk more about the Motley clip. I mean, it's it's so powerful. 
glad you played it. Um, there was there was a draft of the latest negotiating document that was released this morning. Um, it had a timestamp of 5:51 a.m., so it suggests that negotiators were working through the night on it, and it included a few things that nations from the global south and NGOs and activists welcomed. Um, and I, I agree with, with the criticism that you mentioned in the opening introduction of this, too. The things that they thought were good about it, to start with the good news, are firstly that it calls for emissions reductions of 45% uh, based on 2010 levels by 2030. And it demands that all nations revisit, quote, revisit and strengthen, end quote, their 2030 targets by next year. Um, so that's half, you know, the cut, the 50% cut that you mentioned in the opening. But that new part of revisiting and strengthening targets by next year is really important because there isn't, there hasn't been enough ambition on the part of the nations that are most responsible for uh, for CO2 emissions or greenhouse gas emissions um, across the board. And so what developing nations in UN speak are now doing is they're asking for nations to report in every year. The Paris Agreement says they have to report in every five years. That, that was the first time that they had those kinds of time limits even included, and now they're asking for every year, and I think that's great. Um, the other... The other thing that it includes, I'll get to the downsides in a sec too. The other thing that it includes that it's great is the F word, and don't worry, I'm on radio, I'm not going to say that F word. It includes fossil fuels. That was included for the first time with a demand to accelerate the phase out of coal and subsidies for fossil fuels, end quote. There's no specific reference to the end use of oil and gas. That's something nations are pushing for and would love to see, but it is notably the very first time that fossil fuels are included in this document. Now, the downsides for both of those the NGOs and activists have been pointing out is there might be a call for those reductions, but there's a difference between pledges or promises and policy. So there's a difference between you know, saying that you're going to do something and actually doing it. That's that climate. That's That was what was uh, at the heart of the climate action tracker report that came out yesterday that you were mentioning. Also, the Washington Post did this phenomenal um, article that I think they've spent at least the last six months on that your listeners might want to look for that was trying to track uh, – they basically, they added up all the commitments that people have made um, and countries have made and whether or not they added up and found it, lo and behold, shockingly, they um, they didn't, and part of it is you know this issue of pledges and promises versus policy. Um, the other thing that NGOs criticized in terms of it's great that fossil fuels are being mentioned in there, but like I said, there's no specific um, end date, and there are countries that are really starting to push for this. Um, Colombia and Denmark, I believe, um, off the top of my head, are two nations that are trying to set up a group to really agitate for a specific end date for the use of fossil fuels, which obviously would be huge. And it's unclear, your listeners should know, it's unclear whether this language that we're discussing right now that's in the draft, whether that's going to be included at the end of the day. 
Right. Well, so we have a long, a long, long way to go, uh, Tina. Now, tell us at the top of the hour, I played the clip of Simon Kofi from Tuvalu standing knee deep in water uh, addressing COP26 and also Prime Minister of Barbados, Mia Motley's uh, speech. Tell us the significance, you know, because when people think of small islands and they think, well, this is just an insignificant uh, group of people. But as you say in your article for the nation, these are 47 countries with a population of 730 million uh, people. Tell us a bit more of um, what, uh, you know, your thesis, the points that you make in your most recent article about the significance of what the small islands are trying to do. I mean, the small island states, you know, in terms of what Mia Motley from the clip that you mentioned, you know, um, I mean, it's it's in what she said, you know, in the words of Caribbean icon Eddie Grant, will they mourn us on the front line, right, end quote, is, is what she said. And I think I think this COP is, is um, really brought on the heels of um, COVID-19 has really brought, excuse me, to attention um, the, you know, the vaccine of apartheid that exists and how in some ways that's very similar in terms of the climate crisis and who is and is not getting funding. So the developed nations caused this crisis due to their emissions historically, um, you know, going all the way back to, to colonization. And there's, you know, all sorts of things one could say about the dating of the beginning of the climate crisis, the Anthropocene, as some call it. And a lot of people do argue that you shouldn't start with the invention of, of you know, say, the steam engine. And in the U.K., you should start with the slave trade um, and, and focus on, from Africa to the Caribbean, focus on that era and that geography, just in terms of who who you include. Um, but to come, come back to the situation of islands and the two examples that you mentioned being located in the Caribbean, Barbados in the Caribbean, and then uh, Tuvalu being located in the Pacific, these are these are frontline communities that have done the least to cause the climate crisis. They've contributed negligible amounts of uh, of greenhouse gas emissions, and yet they have been for at least a decade disproportionately suffering the impact. And one of their key focuses, and that's what I wrote about in the article that I published with the Nation yesterday that you're mentioning, which really focuses on islands, developing nations in general, including. Um, island nations are demanding four things with regard to funding that developed nations pay up right away on this $1 billion per year that was promised to them in 2009 that was supposed to start in 2020 that hasn't all, all been paid and it's supposed to go through 2025. Um, secondly, that they increase their contributions over time. Given what I just mentioned, that, that historical responsibility or climate debt for creating the crisis you could also refer to this as climate uh, reparations, and also because climate change impacts are intensifying. And then thirdly, that these monies be outright and not debt-creating loans. That's been a huge problem is that some of these monies come in the form of loans. And we're talking about like 10 to 20 to 30 percent of nations' um, GDP going towards addressing uh, climate change impacts. So it's a huge their money. And some of these nations are faced with the decision of, wait, okay, I have a limited amount of funds here. Do I use it to address the impacts of the hurricane that came through last week? Or do I use that money to pay off the debt that I owe to, you know, be it the IMF or the World uh, Bank, et cetera? And then fourthly, they're demanding that developed nations, because of what I just mentioned, be freed of debts to developed nations or these entities so that they don't have to consider whether or not, you know, they're going to use the money for this or for that. 
So I think that's really important. We're talking these. Some of these nations are only um, like the Marshall Islands is in the Pacific. It's only six and a half feet above sea level. It's it's an atoll. It's entirely flat, and when there's there's a hurricane um, that comes through, or just just the, the the floods that come with the high tides, they have buildings that are inundated and in un, in uninhabitable. They have their soil gets salinized, so salt water gets into their soil, and um, then the the plants can't grow. The salt water also gets into their wells. They don't have a source of freshwater drinking water, so they rely on wells. And when the salt water gets into those wells, they don't have a source of drinking water. And then they're confronted with a double whammy of too much salt water, not enough fresh water because they have droughts often. So these are some of the things these nations are already dealing with. And when Mia Motley called for more funding on adaptation, that might be UN language. Um, it's like, what does that even mean? Um, adaptation is when you have to pay for things to address the effects of the climate crisis. So that would be like managed retreat, moving people or infrastructure inland. And right now, that's not getting enough money. What's getting more money is the thing she mentioned called mitigation. And mitigation is reducing emissions. That means, you know, like shifting from um, fossil fuels to renewable energy. That's really important. But these island nations are not contributing that much in greenhouse gas emissions. So, like, for them to get renewables is, is excellent. Um, but what matters more is the fact that they already are feeling these impacts. So that's where they need the money. And the money, unfortunately, is going more now to these, you know, mitigation um, uh, mitigation efforts rather than adaptation. Right, and and in your article, you quote um, the uh, Minister of Climate from Grenada, another uh, Caribbean uh, frontline island, of saying mitigation is a marathon and adaptation is a sprint. And just your final thoughts on this. I mean, I I, I was going to ask you to explain what was meant by adaptation, so I'm glad you I'm glad you <laughs> did because it does seem to me. I mean, I'm part of a movement that's calling for a care income for people who care for people as well as for the environment. And it sounds as though what the global south is saying, look to the global north, you all need to pay up. The adaptation has to do with the money that's needed to make the necessary uh, changes, right, um, to mitigate uh, what's happening with the hope that we're not already past the tipping point. Just your final thoughts, uh, Tina Gerhardt. I mean, this is the decade for action, right? If if we are going to succeed in keeping global temperatures from increasing no more than 1.5, this is the decade for action. So net zero by 2050, you know, listen to Greta Thunberg, blah blah blah. We need we need action and concrete commitments this this decade, which means they have to start now. It doesn't mean they start at the end of the decade. Absolutely. And Tina, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us because I imagine it's really difficult keeping up with everything and then producing as many articles as you have. Um, we're going to try to call on you again. We're not sure we'll have some success, but we're glad to have you uh, today. And we hope that you'll be back to fill us in a bit more about what is happening. Tina Gerhardt, thank you so much for your work and thank you for joining us. Such a pleasure. Thank you. Such a pleasure. Thank you.
All righty. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And uh, before we welcome our next guest, uh, Vinnie Overbeck, coordinator of the World Forest Movement, uh, let us hear what now 18-year-old Greta Thunberg had to say, her famous blah, blah, blah speech about criticizing what world leaders are not doing. Let's go to it's that clip now. It's not about some expensive, politically correct, green act of bunny-hugging or blah, 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 build back better, blah, 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 green economy, blah, 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 net zero by 2050, blah, 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 net zero by 2050, blah, 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 net zero, blah, 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 climate neutral, blah, blah, blah. This is all we hear from our so-called leaders. Words, words that sound great, but so far has led to no action. Our hopes and dreams drown in their empty words and promises. Of course, we need constructive dialogue, but they've now had 30 years of blah, 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 and where has that led us? But, of course, we can still turn this around. It is entirely possible. It will take drastic annual emission cuts unlike anything the world has ever seen. And as we don't have the technological and can deliver anything to change, we can no longer let the people in power decide what is politically possible or not. We can no longer let the people in power decide what hope is. Hope is not passive. Hope is not blah, blah, blah. Hope is telling the truth. Hope is taking action. And hope always comes from the people. Telling the truth, hope is taking action. Hope always comes from the people. On that note, I'd like to welcome Winnie Overbeck, who has been the coordinator of the World Forest Movement since 2011, a global network supporting forest-dependent communities in their struggles to defend their territories in Latin America, Africa, and Asia. Winnie is based in the Brazilian town of Vitoria in the Espirito Santo state. Before engaging with this, Winnie worked for many years with networks and organizations in Brazil supporting communities affected by large-scale tree plantations and other large-scale agro-industrial projects. Vinny Overbeek, welcome back. Hello, Margaret. Uh, thank you very much for the invitation, and hello, everyone who is listening to us. Right. And in a way, your response, I mean, I know you have a critique. You're not at, at COP26. And I wonder if you could tell us why and if other networks um, that are part of the world uh, forest movement have a similar critique of what's going on at, at COP26 and, and perhaps share some of what Greta Thunberg was saying of blah, 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 <laughs> Vinnie Overbeek. Yeah, it's difficult to express it better than, than she does. Um, but maybe, uh, yeah, one reason not to go there is that, I, yeah, there's basically basically not really much significantly happening there, I would say. Um, as, as Greta said, it's, it's all very disappointing and, uh, disappointing and already for 30 years, huh? It's it's uh, it's really bizarre that you know 30 conferences about the climate crisis that nowadays we, we 
can better talk about the climate chaos. Huh? Um, and we know what the problem is. It's about the yeah the since the industrial revolution, huh? um, burning fossil fuels, coal, gas, which is leading to these climate uh, this climate change. And the solution is also very clear. I mean. We should leave the oil in the soil. We should leave the coal in the hole. Yeah. And the the bizarre thing I was mentioning is that uh, although the governments they know about this, they don't talk about this. And they I just heard my the previous speaker saying that there is some talk now about oil and fossil oil and so on. But if you look at the Paris Agreement, there's no mention at all about oil. So it's very strange that the conference in Paris, it was like 25 years of negotiations and you come to an agreement uh, about the problem and you, don't know, you do not even mention what is the cause. Where there is mention in this Paris Agreement is, for example, to forest. Eh? And we are, as World Rainforest Movement, working around forest, deforestation, supporting the struggles of forest-dependent communities. and. Um, it, it is it is curious to see how, from a climate uh, crisis uh, conference, that should talk about you know where the crisis comes from. They they are more talking about forest than any forest conference, and uh, they see forest as one way to remove all this excessive carbon we have now in the atmosphere after it has been you know emitted uh, of centuries of digging up oil and. Um, yeah, this, this is all happening, I, I would say, because, and it's another reason maybe not to be there really in the conference room, because actually we cannot be there, Margaret. We cannot be part of the negotiations. And it, it was very little news a few years ago, I remember, that uh, the corporations, big corporations in the world, they got access to the negotiation tables. And actually I saw a number of, I think it was more than 500 who are there, yeah, and at the same time, uh, yeah, also because of the COVID-19 crisis, a friend of mine sent a message that, according to his estimate from an organization in South Africa, there were there's probably only one third of civil society organizations in Glasgow then that are normally are participating in these climate conferences because they don't have. Um, yeah, they, there is a sort of, uh, also this friend of South Africa said it like this, a sort of vaccination apartheid, you know, because you cannot easily get into the UK if you come from Africa, where although you know, the, the countries of the north, the global north, promised to help the countries in Africa to vaccinate population, it hasn't happened yet. So they couldn't go to the conference, but even if they would get to Glasgow, they couldn't get into the negotiation negotiation rooms. And who is there are the government and the corporations, and they have the power uh, to influence the negotiations. And, and that scenario is the scenario we are have to deal with now. So uh, that to comment a bit why we are not there. It doesn't mean, Margaret, that we are not following what comes out of it. And uh, because that has a lot of consequences, of course, uh, for the for the people on the ground. You know? uh, both those who are facing the, the impacts of climate crisis and also those who are 
So I, I, I mean those who have to adapt to all these changes, and but there are also those who are being affected by what comes out of Glasgow in the sense of the false solutions that they design, like the carbon markets, um, like the reforestation. They are talking about the planting of trees. And those communities, that the lands that these communities have are targeted for these kind of projects. So that, that we are trying to closely follow. Right. I mean, you're absolutely right with everything you're saying, actually, Vinnie. And uh, recently, I was involved in some support work for the Apache stronghold uh, here in the U.S., where their most sacred site has been given over by the administration to one of the world's largest copper mining companies. And with all of the move to the green economy and uh, the so-named green economy and electric cars, etc., cetera, uh, even solar uh, batteries, what a lot of people are not thinking about are what are the impacts of that this mining will have um, on places like the uh, Apache stronghold, but also indigenous communities on all of the continents. I mean, the, the work that you all are doing, and not only in Latin America, but Africa and also Asia. So I wanted you to comment on that on, on the one hand, but on the other hand, the impacts of all of this of people who live in the forest, who traditionally have lived in the forest. Vinnie Overbeek. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, I think another bizarre aspect of these conferences is how they frame the problem. Eh? And the problem is basically what, what they say is uh, we have a problem of too much carbon in the atmosphere. Yeah. And that too much carbon and, and other greenhouse gas uh, gases it's raising our temperature and it will have a lot of impact. So the solution is to get this carbon out, out of the atmosphere. And I think that is a very, it, it means that you are yeah, focused on a very technical issue. You are focused on a number of calculations that need to be done. Huh? There's a lot of even if you'd be there, you try to follow many people like us. We are just like ordinary people. How can we follow all these calculation and discussion? And I heard my previous speaker talking about uh, historical issue. This is part of a much bigger uh, process of colonization, uh, of racism, of patriarchy, of capitalism, of course, uh, where... Yeah, somehow the climate crisis is a result of. So if we don't uh, try to put the problem in a bigger picture, if we don't, it, it's not just about, you, you were mentioning the, the electric cars. It's not just about, you know, having an electric car that you don't need fossil fuel. Uh, it's still about having a car. And the electric cars, you know, they they are mostly driving now in Norway, one of the richest countries one of the countries that is most polluting the air with their oil business, and one of the countries that is most, uh, yeah, in their propaganda, investing in forest countries to preserve the forest, to compensate, supposedly compensate for their, yeah, their big historical debt with having extracted so much oil and so much other minerals, because the, the Norwegian multinationals, we come across them a lot, 
in tropical forest areas where they are digging up all kinds of things they, they want to make money from and they want to use for their products. And this is a model of production and consumption in a capitalist economy, in a neoliberal capitalist economy where, where the corporations you know, are taking over the power of states in many places. So if we don't consider, you know, the bigger picture and the model of production and consumption, we are lost eh? and we, we get stuck in these technical discussions. Uh, even we as social movements, we need to make that criticism because we cannot just talk about one half degrees or two degrees. Uh, although this has a lot of ink about capitalism, we have to talk about social injustice. We have to talk about a historical uh, process that is not the past. And these people in the conference, they, they, they love to talk about 2050. Uh, their targets for zero net emissions, like Rita said, in 2050. But they don't look back uh, where, where, you know, this whole problem came from and how we can, how we can start to, to solve these problems. And these are fundamental issues, I know that are not easy. I don't have easy responses. I only know that the electric car of where everyone now is pushing for is not a solution. It will lead us to further problems. We have made several analyzes what is needed eh, from tropical forests, for example, to make these electric cars. And we are talking about hundreds of minerals. We are talking about a grabbing of a lot of forest that is still there because there is some mineral there. We are talking about... Uh, for example, an example, eh, the, the wind energy that everyone is so enthusiastic about. D did you know that yeah. for the, the wind, for these, um, I'm sorry, my English is not the best, but to make these windmills, to make these things turning around, they use a sort of tropical timber, which is very, um, it's not a heavy timber, and it's very um, strong timber. It's called balsa, it comes from Ecuador, and it has become the, the main uh, timber export product to China now because China is right. producing these windmills. And it's a big problem in Ecuador, you know. Many communities, they are being devastated because of our, our, uh, timber extraction. Are being impacted. So, Absolutely. Winnie, you, I'm hearing the music. That means that we are out of time. But you know what that also means, Winnie, is you're going to have to come back and uh, explain to us a bit more about all of this, because what you're saying really so vital that we all have to consider, because there is a climate, a, ca a catastrophe happening. Winnie Overbeck, thank you so very much for joining us, and we hope to speak with you again soon. Okay. All righty. Okay. We're out of time. Today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank the Sojourner Truth team, including assistant producer Romero Funes and today's audio engineer. If you'd like a copy of today's show, you can contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. And remember to visit our website, sotrueradio.org, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at SoTrueRadio. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott.